Faith Factor Impact, episode number six. Hey everybody, welcome to Faith Factor Impact, where we hang out with today's top nonprofit thought leaders to get refueled, reconnected, and inspiration. So let's go. We have people die, and when I'm down and I look around at who's going to carry the ball, I do find inspiration in knowing that I got good people around me. Hello, Impact listeners, Jay Everline here, your host, and I am fired up and wired up to present to you today our featured guest, Mitchell Gibbs. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jesse. Mitchell Gibbs is the executive director for Front Steps, a non-for-profit organization that is working to end homelessness in Austin, Texas. Mitchell has worked in the nonprofit sector for over 20 years and has served on more than 50 nonprofit boards. His reach in the community ranges from education and advocacy to health and housing issues for underserved populations. Some lovingly refer to him as the fundraising guy, speaking to his knack for firing up others to give to worthy causes. Mitchell is a top-notch thought leader who's doing work that matters and making an impact. So, Mitchell, take a moment and tell us a little bit about you personally and what you do. Well, Jesse, um, I've been... um working in nonprofit field for a number of years, and I, I kind of got sucked into this work. I didn't start out to, to do nonprofit work. I was going to talk about um, being in media and communications and advertising and doing all of those kind of fun and exciting things. And I got uh, involved in, in a story about uh, young children born with HIV and AIDS. And from that time on, there was something that touched my heart that just said, this is, this is what I needed to be doing. And it's been uh, an interesting and sometimes difficult journey. Uh, but working here in Austin and working with um, persons experiencing homelessness really cements my feet to the ground. And it does tell me that I've, I've made some right choices and that there's so many folks out there that need help. And I'm just one small piece in the cog, but uh, I'm where I need to be. Wonderful. So, Mitchell, we always start the top of our show off with the reflection. Would you take a moment and share with us? Sure. Um, I said some of this work is a little difficult. And one of the, the pieces that I like is from Viktor Frankl. And he says, what is to give light must endure burning. And I think that that's certainly the, the trial that um, I see so many folks that get involved in this work trying to help other people. There's been a life experience somewhere in there that really encouraged them to get involved and to reach out and to do more. And, uh, you know, some of it's around philanthropy and, and finding donors. Your donors who give money to worthy causes tend to be people who have been affected in some way by it. Certainly our volunteers that come forward to give of their time, um, they've seen it. There's something that's touched their heart. And uh, that, that burning passion, whether it was that life experience for you or witnessing it in others, I think those are the things that make us look toward our humanity and get involved in helping others. Mm, so, so powerful. I love that you started off with that at the top of the show. So um, apropos to what we'll be talking about today. So thank you uh, for that. So, Mitchell, you've had a very interesting journey. Tell, tell me a little bit about your journey and the steps you took to get to where you are today. Well, you know, it's it's been an interesting road. Uh, like I said, I started off looking at uh, journalism and advertising and, and writing. And I, I love to write and I love to read. 
And uh, all of those things kind of told me that I needed to be in the communications field in some way. And I think um, that was working well for me. Uh, I was successful in doing that. And I, I think if I had not had the experience of we walked into a hospital working on an advertising campaign and found a, a baby rocking program. And these were children that were born with HIV. And so many people back in the day, early on in the HIV epidemic, um, people were afraid to touch. They were afraid for that human contact. And here were these, these children that were born to parents that weren't able to or to uh, nursing staff even that didn't feel that they could uh, be safe in having person-to-person contact with an infant. And if I hadn't had that experience um, of, of seeing a, such a great need and feeling what I felt inside about, um, you know, it was just such a sense of fulfillment that, yes, I was giving, but I was also getting at the same time. I think that drive was what led me to become more involved with, with nonprofits and being in the media and that kind of thing. There was always a nonprofit that was standing there saying, hey, help me get some attention, help me attract donors, help me attract volunteers. And uh, I could do that from a media perspective, um, but it gave me lots of exposure to different kinds of nonprofit work and seeing some that, that worked well and did the work well and uh, fulfilled their missions and others that really struggled on that on that path. And so uh, when my opportunity came to get involved with an organization, uh, they kind of said, here, put up or shut up. Mm. And uh, I, I took the challenge, and I won't say that I've never looked back. Uh, you struggle a lot in nonprofit. The money, the money is poor. Uh, the reward is great. Um, but there are lots of challenges along the way. And, uh, and I often think, you know, what would my other, my other pathways have been had I not had one of those experiences along the way? And I don't know that I'd trade them for anything. I love that. You know, one of the things that, that really struck me as you were uh, sharing there about your journey is, is, uh, and it tied very well into your reflection. You're, you're in this hospital and you, you have this burning, desire in your heart that reaches out and rather than ignoring that right you were you were on a path that you felt good about and you were helping and you were successful but there was something greater that was calling you and and I just appreciate the fact that you you listened to that voice and and followed so wonderful wonderful so Mitchell after you've reached the point where you are today you a successful executive director there's sometimes this misperception that things always seem to work out for you. And, but you and I know that, you know, that's so far from the truth and that you've had your fair share of Valley moments, which is what we call challenging times. So can you tell me one of the most challenging Valley moments that you've had and talk to us about what that was like? What did you feel? Um, Share that with us. I think one that, that is a constant in working here um, at Front Steps and working at the Austin Resource Center for the Homeless, you know, we're in downtown Austin, and there is a, there is a very visible population of homelessness in downtown Austin. And there is a portion of the community that would like for them to not be visible. Mm-hmm. Um, they would like for the corner of 7th and Neches to be free of, of people on the sidewalk. They would like for there to be Um, No panhandling happening in downtown. They would like for homelessness to be more invisible than it already is. 
and that's something that I give great credit to our our homeless uh, residents or people experiencing homelessness in Austin. They don't let us forget that they are that they exist out there and that they are people. And part of my Valley moment um, moments uh, <laughs> are that we have uh, a community expectation that we are going to no longer um, have people out on the street and that either by criminalizing homelessness and using the police to arrest our way out of homelessness um, or in some miracle situation that we're going to have everyone housed tomorrow, there's an expectation of, uh, on me and on my organization that that is our job is to make the, that street corner clear. And and yet there are, uh, you know, not an abundance of resources coming forward. And some of those expectations are coming from people who don't contribute the resources to be able to make housing possible for mm-hmm. this population. And while I see that the answer to homelessness is not shelter, it's not emergency shelter, it's not transitional housing, it's permanent supportive housing where we can get people lifted up out of their circumstances that they're experiencing and be able to create a new life moment for them in better surroundings. And I I think that that's the only way that we're going to get there and the expectations that folks put on to my staff and to our organization that it's it's our job to clean up the street and to ensure that there's no criminal activity going on around the building or that we just need to not have people laying down on the street and sleeping outside. There's a, there's an unrealistic expectation in that, and it hurts my heart sometimes that that there is patient and that people that have that expectation are not always willing to do the heavy lifting mm. and to lift people up instead of walking past them with a blind eye. Mm. Wow, wow, that's a. Uh, I'm I'm wondering as you share that that experience, the the valley that you find yourself in. How did you? How do you cope with those challenges? Like, how do you, what do you, what do you learn from, from those things? And what would be a takeaway, if you will, uh, from that experience? Well, I think one is that it's, um, it helps me. And I think it helps the the conversation in general is to continue our communication. Let's talk about it at the community level. Let's also look at it at at a national level. We, we tend to look at our own situations in, in more of a bubble um, and when you look at the size of our community and you realize how how quickly we're growing and that so many of the social situations that we've got happening around us and the need for a social services safety net continues to grow, it's really not a lot different than other communities our size. Mm-hmm. And they're struggling with some of the same issues. And so I do take some solace in being able to look at other communities and the way that they're addressing some of these issues and to be able to communicate that back to our community leaders and the folks that have those expectations about how this is going to resolve itself in our community. Um, I think we can learn a lot from from other communities about what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. Um, and and you know, I think that there are some brass tacks that we're we're going to have to look at. If we really want to solve the situation of homelessness in our community, we've got to look at housing solutions. And we've got to look at it's not just uh, about housing itself. There's also the issue of poverty, which affects so many more people that are not homeless today, but may become so tomorrow if the poverty in our community is not addressed and the, the living wage and the, the access to health and health care. 
all of those things combined in kind of a social storm that displaced people from their existing stable family environments. And so I think that we've, we're learning from other communities as we go along. We're a little behind the ball right now, um, but I, I think we're making great progress in being able to get people housed and to address homelessness in a very tangible way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my big takeaways from your learning is, you know, a lot of times when we get into a valley moment, it can sometimes feel like you're there all alone. And so one of the things that you share that I think is key is you're not. Oftentimes there is no experience that you're having at any moment that someone else has not either gone through or is going through. And um, it is always great to be able to stay connected with others that are experiencing the same things that you are to find some sense of safety. And you said solace um, mm-hmm. and knowing that you're not in it alone. So awesome. Absolutely. St- awesome. Stuff. And I look, I look to, I look to some of my, uh, in my peers in doing this work, um, some wonderful folks over at Caritas and at Salvation Army and Trinity Center in our downtown area that also experience those same issues and struggle so mightily with those same issues. having that peer support there for you can make a a day uh, much different than it started. Mm -hmm. So, Mitch, I want to transition a bit here, and I want to talk about impact leadership. So you've served on boards. You're leading an organization that that says it wants to end homelessness or working to end homelessness in Austin. Let's let's talk about uh, this, this idea of leadership. Some have this opinion that it's more difficult, if you will, to run and lead a nonprofit organization than, say, a corporation. What's your perspective on that? I don't know that it's any that it's more difficult. I, I think that there are uh, some of the same nuances in both. Um, I think that they both they have both have figured out a way to keep the doors open. And in a corporate um, environment, it's, it's the structure of that is much different than it is in a nonprofit environment. And I've worked with people on both sides of the fence trying to understand the other and how they work. And oftentimes it's very uh, confusing and frustrating for, for one to understand and work through uh, the operations of the other. Mm-hmm. But I think that we, you know, we do face many of the same uh sorts of issues. We've, we've got to be able to keep the doors open. We've got to be able to keep our personnel motivated. We've got to meet our customers' needs and really look at, at what those needs are at a very basic level um, so that we can structure the support services around them. And I think that hiring great people and being able to, to keep those people motivated in nonprofit, you're probably not going to do it with money. Mm. Uh, in a corporate world, you know there are there are ways to throw more money at people and try try to to buy their motivation. In nonprofit, we buy their motivation by seeing the success of the people that we serve. Mm. And I think that's a that's a little bit of a nuanced difference, but there's there are a number of similarities between the two. Yeah, that's good. So when I talk to successful leaders like yourself, there's often this defining moment or story along your leadership journey that really sticks out. What would you say has had the greatest influence on your leadership style? You know, I think um, it's it's probably been a, a failure as much as a success, a failure in recognizing where I didn't succeed at some juncture and where I failed to lead at some some juncture. Um, this work can be very, very draining. And I think that there have been a number of times in, in my career that I have burnout. We talk about just complete and utter burnout. Mm-hmm. 
and I recognize looking back how often that has happened for me and that when I am in that that valley, uh, that I'm not as much of an effective leader and I need to have people around me that can pick up the ball and run with it while I get my feet back and under me. And I think probably some of those defining moments for me uh, have have really evolved around when I'm down and I look around at who's going to carry the ball, I do find inspiration in knowing that I got good people around me and that there was something about my leadership that allowed me to develop those relationships that said, I can depend on you when mm-hmm. I can't carry the ball. And uh, that's... That provides me some uh, some ability, you know, to walk away, to have a vacation every now and then, mm-hmm. to to rely on somebody else to do the heavy lifting when I'm not in a in a position to be able to do it. But it's it's come through not succeeding in some of those moments whenever I was just totally wiped out. Mm, that's that's great. Uh, sometimes our our greatest learning is in those moments of. A weakness. You have to learn to embrace them. It sounds like you've uh, you've done that. So, congratulations. Uh, hey. <laughs> well, it's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> you know, we we've um, dealing with this particular population here in with homeless. We we see some folks that are a number of folks that have got really high physical uh, medical challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, living on the street will take a lot out of you in a very short period of time, and we we lose people along the way. We have people die, and we have them die at shelter. We have them die on the street, and even when we succeed in getting them into housing, we often have people who've, who've been on the street so long that the physical toll was so much that they didn't last long in housing. And I think that's that's one of those pieces that tests every one of my staff. And when those moments happen, I look around to see Who's ready to carry the ball when somebody else can't? Not just for me, mm-hmm. but for the rest of their team. And those are the people that they're going to be there for us when we need them. And uh, and we appreciate the work that they're able to do, even in some of those very difficult circumstances. So good. So good. So rich. So, Mitchell, on Faith Factor Impact, we believe that effective leadership can be the difference between surviving and thriving. And as a leader, how do you define effective leadership? And what does that mean to you? And what would you say specifically separates the good from the great? You know, I think a, a part of that is chance. Um, I think part of it is the the organization that you're in, that you're in, that you're born to, that that your heart is wrapped around, and and making sure that that's a good fit to start with. Um, if you don't believe in in the organization that you're with, you're probably not going to be able to lead them far or effectively. Once we get past that, I think that there are a lot of external factors out there that that we don't necessarily have control over. And so, to some extent, maybe there is some some chance and an external base to whether or not there's success. But I think when we look at the the organization and the mission of the organization, a, a leader is able to really parse that down to its barest minimum and you're going to determine whether or not your organization is meeting that mission, that vision that that you or others before you have established. And if it's not, you've got to get it back on track. And if you've got a successful leader, not only can you get it back on track, but you can keep it on track. And it takes regular analysis and it takes some you know, there are going to be different grant opportunities and different money that's thrown at you and said, 
can you do this over here? It's really not what you do, but here's some money. If you'll deviate from your mission and take this piece on, you can chase the money all day long, and maybe you can, can you know, get some additional funding into your organization, which is a great thing. But if it doesn't meet your mission, if it's straying from where you're headed and where your organization needs to go, you're there for a reason. You didn't build that mission statement and you didn't look at the people that you were dedicating yourself to serve to decide that two months down the line you're going to vary from that and to stray from that. So being able to contain, remain focused on your mission and your vision and who you're there to serve and effectively weighing and evaluating whether or not you're doing that well. I think if if you're not doing it well, you need to step back and, and first, I think your leadership needs to look at, are they succeeding? Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, I think the, that filters down throughout the organization. We need to evaluate at every level. And, and are the people that were there to help, are they doing their part too? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that we often... Um, we often don't look at deep enough. It, I'm, you know, I'm kind of old school. I've been around a while, um, and I do believe that part of your success is what you put into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for folks that are struggling within our social services safety net. And that's part of my expectation when I sit down with a client is to find what they're going to bring to the table to help resolve the situation. And I think as leaders, that's something that we need to do within ourselves. And we need to expect it of our staff and of those that we're there to serve. Wonderful, wonderful. So, Mitch, I want to keep going deeper here and uh, just going to be more quick, quick insights from you, if you will. Can you name the top two skills you believe are needed to be a successful non-for-profit leader that perhaps were not as critical in the past? I think transparency uh, is certainly becoming you know, catchphrase, but it's also the basis for a lot of nonprofit work. And I think the other one is an ability to communicate. We've, we've got to be able to tell our message. We've got to be able to, to talk about the work that we're doing, and we've got to be able to use those skills to bring the resources to the table to address the situation. Can you share one to two tactics that you've used in your career to attract top performers to join your team and to continue to contribute to your team? For me, it's been it's been in that interview. Um, yeah, you know, I see lots of people that look great on paper, and I sit down across the table from them, and I don't see it in their heart. And that's the piece that I that I look for whenever I'm, I'm trying to attract talent. You know, I can put all different kinds of money and benefits and different kinds of things on the table in a very limited capacity, given that this is nonprofit. But it's the the heart that somebody's going to bring to the work that I'm looking for. Mm, thank you for those quick tips there. So. I'm going to make a, a bit of a pivot here, and, and I have a question for you. We really kind of focus on an area that we call the genius zone, and, you know, there's a lot of research on operating in your area of strength to get the greatest results, and and we have this belief here that God has given each and every individual a genius-level talent is what we call it. And so tell us, if you will, what's your genius talent or strength, and how do you manage to focus in that area day in and day out? I struggle with those words, but I would say I would say that the the thing that um, has been very beneficial to me in some of the success building that we've done within this organization and and others is about relationship building, and it's it's building the relationship and it's proving yourself day in and day out that you're there to do the work, you're committed to doing the work, and that you're producing results. 
So I think the, the relationships that um, we're able to, to create and foster are the things that make this work possible. Mm-hmm. You know, Mitchell, it's, it's, I like that. And, um, but I'm curious, you know, uh, some people really struggle in the space of building relationships. And can, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, what's your approach? How do you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you go about making those connections and making them authentic? What, what do you do? Yeah, I think the authentic piece is, is the, something that works for me. You know, I said early on, if, if it's not something that you believe in, you maybe you're not going to be as effective at it. And that's been the way that I've approached a lot of this is, is through a transparency. Um, I've, I've sat down across from, from funders and contractors and board members and uh, lots of different folks and said, this is, this is me, this is who I am. And if you don't want to to know the answer to the question, don't ask the question. <laughs> if you ask me, I'm going to give you what I believe is my is it's my truth. It's my take on the situation, and I think that that there is a great appreciation of that straightforwardness and the ability to shoot from the hip and to call it like it is. And um, th- there are moments when I really want to warn somebody up front before you ask that question, before the words come out of your mouth be prepared for an answer that may not be the one that you're looking for. Mm. But if you're willing to have an honest conversation, I'm your guy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to you honestly about how how I perceive it, right or wrong. It's my perception, and I'm, and I'm happy to share that with you if you ask. You know, it, it's individuals like yourself that I could do coffee with any day of the week. So I, I, I appreciate that about you. So you've, you've got these strengths, but surely there's something that uh, you struggle with. What is the thing you struggle with the most? It's around funding, and uh, there's a little bit of a political climate out there that that is saying, you know, people do need to lift themselves up by their bootstraps, and that we are, we're throwing good money after bad by um, by throwing money at a social service safety net, and that all of the social services that I can't tell you how often I hear this one. We're a magnet. Austin is a magnet because of all of the social services, the wealth of social services that we provide. And I see in our population here, the demographics of the people that walk through our door. And, you know, we see uh, over 7,000 people a year coming to receive emergency uh, shelter services. The demographics of those folks 80% 80% of them are coming from Central Texas. Mm. It's not that we're attracting people from across the nation. It's our neighbors that are struggling and our neighbors that are finding themselves in these situations. And so I, I think that, that the piece that I'm struggling with around this new atmosphere, um, and it's not new, it's been around, it cycles through, but the atmosphere at present is that people need to justify their need and that we need to be uh, uh, making uh, folks, you know, show their contribution toward, and I believe in some of that, but I also believe that we got to take a chance on people, and we've got to be able to help them regardless of uh, of your own aspirations in life. We've got to start where where that individual is and lift them up to their capacity, not to yours. That's a little bit of a political environment that we're dealing with uh, locally as well as nationally. Mm. Wonderful stuff. So 
I want to talk a little bit here. Um, there are a lot of needs in the community. You've talked about some of them in terms of the work that you are actively involved in right now. But what are you doing right now that most excites you? You know, we're uh, looking at some medical impacts, and we've got a couple of different task force going. It's, it's uh, an exciting time in our community around the idea of a new health hospital coming forward. A um, lot of partners are coming to the table that are looking at different ways to provide health care, not to just homeless, not to just folks in poverty, but in general, what does our community want and need um, to improve its health? And some of those ideas are about taking the taking the medical care to to the person. A lot of our folks around traffic and transportation don't want to have to try to, you know, you feel bad, you don't want to, you're ill, you don't want to drive across town trying to get to the doctor or to the clinic or that kind of thing. Can we get some medical care that's closer to you? And is it pop-up clinics or uh, are there temporary mobile sites? Those kinds of things I think are going to be really innovative and they're going to push the envelope as far as our traditional views of medical care. And as it relates to homelessness, I think that we have some very unique challenges within this population in Austin, Texas, to improve the health and health care delivery to our homeless people. But I think we've got some wonderful people at the table that are going to be addressing that challenge with some of these new resources. And so I think it's a very exciting time around improving the health care of our entire community. Mitchell, so a lot of nonprofits, you talked about this a little bit earlier, rely heavily on donors to fund their mission. And as I introduced you, um, you know, some really refer to you as the fundraising guy. And so I can't help but to ask you, you know, how have you sharpened your skills to get donors excited about giving over and over again? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I don't know where they're getting that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I I think that, you know, I've worked in just the development field within the nonprofit structure. And um, I think you have to start with who's your donor base and and who are you looking at that's, that's already loving you and loving the work that you're doing and, and are they able to help you tell the story? And if that's the case, then how do we get them in front of a larger audience? Um, you know, I work for a nonprofit and who who really is going to listen to me, who with a deep pocket is going to listen to me tell the story of that nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But if I can put someone who's experienced what my nonprofit does, uh, either from a client-based standpoint or a volunteer or another donor, I think that there's there's some real identification factors that happen for potential donors in those situations. Um, we do a lot of contract work um, here at Front Steps, and so those contracts are, are less built around that donor experience uh, in, in that traditional way, but it's very much about our track record and what we've been able to show that we were able to do with a previous contractor's dollars. And if I can say, dang it, we housed three, 300 people last year through these resources, and it saved our community an average of about $40,000 per year, per person that we were able to house, times 300, that's the impact that your donation, your contract to my organization can deliver. Mm. And oh. I think that's it's, it's the same message that you're giving to a, an individual philanthropist, but you're doing it in a different way. And I, I think it takes both messages to make a, a healthy and successful nonprofit. I think that's good. So folks that are listening, just 
key in on this, what Mitchell just shared is that, you know, while you certainly can go out and be a, be a cheerleader for yourself and your organization in terms of the work that you do, getting others that are already psyched up about the work you do to speak on your behalf is a strategy that will help you uh, immensely. So Mitchell is, is sharing words of wisdom here. I encourage you to take that to heart. Um, so, Mr. you got into this a little bit a second ago um, about measurement, and you, you started at the very tail end of there to talk about, you know, some of the, the data that you were sharing. And that's a really important thing. So how do you approach quantifying your efforts with data? And I asked this question specifically because, you know, in nonprofits, it can be challenging sometimes to, to, to quantify um, things. So how do, you, how do you take that on? Well, it can be challenging. It can be very time-consuming, and if you if you want to bring in some outside resources, it can be very expensive. Um, and I, th- I look at those those long-term measures and long-term outcomes. I'll talk about those in the context that they can be very expensive. If I help somebody today, uh, maybe they weren't homeless, but they were. They've got that addiction notice in their hands, and I want to keep them from ever hitting homelessness ever hitting the system, um, so I, I'm able to pay their rent this month, and it gets them back on their feet, and I never see or hear from them again. How do I measure the effectiveness of that if they never hit the system and we didn't have any other contact with them? And yet, here are 12 others that I had different kinds of relationships. They hit me twice. They needed my help. They came back to me um, you know, three years later uh, and needed my help. If if I've got those kinds of relationships and experiences going on, how do I then measure how effective I am and how do I quantify that? It's probably outside the bandwidth of any nonprofit that I know of to have staff that are going to be able to track and measure over three, five, seven, we've been around 14 years. You know, how How are we going to be able to do that? Um, when you see a lot of these longitudinal surveys that come about that produce some really good data, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of contracted time and effort that go into producing those kinds of data sets and, re- and results information. So what can I do on a daily basis to give me as much information to be able to share on a data, in a data standpoint? Well, one, I have to decide what it is that I'm going to start with our our goal, which is ending homelessness, sheltering people, making sure that people are moving forward in a case management plan. Those are going to be some real tangible things that I can begin to measure on the ground. And I'm going to gather as much data about demographics and where people came from and what's going on in their lives that have led to this moment and then what changed and what was the effect of that change. And I'll measure it for as long as I can given my limited resources. And I think that's part of the strategy is we're going to be asked for more and more information and more and more show me the results at the end of the day as we deal with the political environments and the, the, the limited amounts of social service dollars that are out there, we're really going to have to prove ourselves. Prove ourselves kind of hurts when you think about we're out there every day doing good work and we're helping people and we know that. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to take time and pull resources away from doing that work in order to justify it to you. That's how i build some sustainability. That's how I keep funders coming back to the table. So that part of it's a little bit of a vicious circle, 
but it tells us who we're working with and where our successes are and some strategies that work for us along the way and what doesn't work for us, get it out of the pool. Mm-hmm. We got something new that we can try tomorrow that may work better. That's great. So day to day, collect the data, find out who the people you're serving um, as much as you can with the resources you have. Collect that over a period of time that uh, will help tell a story uh, about what that impact is in spite of, of the the difficulty. Do do something that that can quantify do that. Mm-hmm. So here we at this point where we have what we call the ultimate faith factor question. And so tell us, Mitchell, how has your faith shaped your success in the work you do? You know, um, I, I put faith and, and religion oftentimes in two different categories. Uh, working with HIV and, and a lot of my life experiences, I've you know, I've just encountered so many people with coming from different backgrounds and bringing different elements of faith to the forefront. And I have to respect that in everybody that I see. And I see so many of the, their faith factors influencing and building my own. So I think I'm pretty much a mis- mismatch of different elements that I gathered that long a period of time that lead me to my own faith. And that faith, in summary, is that there's something bigger out there. Uh, I feel like I'm a, I'm a very small, small speck in a, a giant spectrum, and um, and I'm led to do some of the work that I'm doing. And I think that um, people are put into positions to help and into positions to receive for very specific reasons. And so from the faith factor part of it for me is you've got to believe that there's something bigger than yourself, and you've also got to believe in yourself that you're here for a purpose and that you're doing the right thing. Love it, Mitchell. And, you know, um, w- what you just said resonates so much with how we define f- uh, uh, faith. And, you know, a lot of times folks can can confuse that with, you know, a religious belief. But we say it's a strong belief in something that is greater than yourself. Exactly what you said. And it's this factor that drives you to make a lasting impact. And so you're doing that work. And I'm so glad you you shared how your faith has been shaped by the experiences uh, across your journey. Uh, if you could talk to your younger self, if you could go back and, and talk to little Mitchell and and offer some advice, what would that advice be? Seek out support. I think that that has been a personal challenge for me in in being able to ask for help when I when I needed it. Um, I've seen myself as being the helper, and helpers often have that struggle to face. Um, so I think that that would have been a, a key message in all of those times that I've burned out in between. Uh, I think being able to reach out earlier in that process uh, would have helped. And I encourage other um, other folks in all different walks, consider that piece in your life. Who can you reach out to when you need it? Wonderful. Can you share one book you've read that has made a lasting impact on you and the way you approach your work? Well, uh, you know, we talked about fundraising. I would say um, one of the, the Terry Axelrod books about raising more money and talking about bringing people into a cycle of giving and being able to, to talk to folks about a lifetime of philanthropy and how to introduce young people into helping others. I think that one's been a, a favorite. Can you share one tip or action our listeners can take to make an impact, say, in the next one to two weeks? Check your heart. There's somebody in there somewhere that you want to help, and you got to figure out who that is or how that 
person is connected to the world around us and then get involved in in that process. And for some, it's going to be a one-on-one, let me sit down and see if I can help you. For others, it's going to be, you know, that person was experiencing domestic violence. I need to find out what's going on with our domestic violence shelters. This person was elderly and needed a home visit. And there's got to be somebody out there that does that. I, I don't have the capacity in me to do that on a daily basis, but surely there's some organization out there that can make that kind of thing possible. Absolutely. Get out there and look at those resources, but you got to start by checking your heart first. Where can we go to find out more about you and the work you do? We'd love for you to come volunteer and visit at Front Steps. We are at frontsteps.org. Um, we're at the corner of 7th and Natchez in downtown at the Austin Resource Center for the Homeless. But give me a call. I'd be glad to give out my number, 512-305-4156. We'll talk about the resources we need to end homelessness. Awesome. Love it, Mitchell. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a blast. Thank you. So, folks, we say this all the time. The difference between the you now and the you later is the people you meet and the books you read. And you've been listening to Mitchell Gibbs and Jay Everline. And until next time, go make an impact.